Good morning. Welcome once again to Christ's Covenant Fellowship. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Gabriel Etzel. I have the privilege of serving as uh, one of the elders here at the church and uh, excited to uh, share, uh, I think, a very important passage of scripture with you this morning. As Pastor Tyler has already mentioned, uh, today we celebrate the sanctity of human life. Uh, Sunday. This is actually the 40th uh, year that uh, here in the U.S. we are uh, commemorating this day, uh, typically a Sunday in January, and setting that aside uh, to think about, to pray about, to uh, have an intentional look at the significance of babies in the womb, and uh, certainly talking about the abortion uh, debate and question as a society. And so in 1984, that was uh, something that was started. So privileged to be with you. Uh, welcome back to college students. Nice to see you. Uh, we certainly miss you when you're not here. Hopefully you had a good break. Uh, it's nice to see your smiling faces here in the crowd today. And uh, for those of you who uh, are, are new, we would love to just uh, say hello to you, talk to you a little bit more about the church. And so after service, uh, if you want to uh, talk a little bit more about our ministries here, uh, please come and see uh, me or uh, one of the members or one of the other elders as well. Uh, a, a little bit uh, about Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Uh, I was looking for some statistics. It's always uh, kind of a difficult thing to do when you want to search and uh, literally see how many babies have been killed in the past year. Uh, there's a couple of different reports, but even from conservative reports, it's probably about 600,000 to maybe as high as 900,000 babies will be killed annually in the U.S. Let that sink in for a moment. That means more than one child per minute is killed in the U.S. every year. One child per minute. So we've been here almost an hour. Think about the number of lives that is on average. It, it's convicting, I think, for all of us to think about that. And so today, uh, the sermon that I want to preach, I have a bit of a task to make it not a political sermon, which I think is a difficult thing to do when you talk about the sanctity of human life, uh, especially here in the U.S. when I feel like almost anything we talk about becomes political. Uh, and yet, when we make it primarily a political conversation, I think we've lost before we've even started. And so my goal this morning is to have a theological foundation, to look at the pages of Scripture, to have a conversation and discussion about what Scripture says about the sanctity of human life, and then build from that foundation and certainly have implications for us politically. Uh, and certainly we need individuals involved in government and, and making laws and upholding those laws. And so, yes, we want to advocate for that. But my primary purpose here today is that we would look at the scriptures and see what they say about the sanctity of human life. And so the, the big point, right, what I want to get across in the next few minutes is that we must root our convictions concerning the sanctity of human life in the story of the Bible. We must root our convictions concerning the sanctity of human life in the story of the Bible. Uh, to anchor our discussions today, please turn to Genesis chapter 1, uh, the first chapter of the Bible. We're going to start there. We will uh, move around a little bit in Scripture. 
as we look at the story of the Bible. But I want to read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the message. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for an opportunity to gather this morning. God, we've already discussed to some degree the significance of the message this morning, the significance of the sanctity of human life, God. I pray that as we look at your word this morning that we are faithful to what you say in your word, God. I pray that you bring conviction where needed, God. I pray you bring encouragement where needed, and that, Father, uh, we walk out of here this morning more committed to helping in any way we can to love, Father, to minister to, to support those, God, around us, and to advocate for babies in the womb. In your name we pray. Amen. So as, as I was preparing for the message today, I, um, I have a few assumptions about you guys and really about us, right? I'll include myself in this, uh, knowing that I'm speaking to CCF. Uh, so the first assumption is I probably don't have to work very hard to convince those in front of me today that abortion is an evil act, right? Uh, most of you in here, I think, would agree with that. Uh, I don't think I have to spend a lot of time, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, trying to convince you of that because I think we're already there. Secondly, I also assume that there are some of us in the room, and maybe many of us in the room, who would struggle to articulate from a truly biblical perspective why we are opposed to abortion. Now, some of you might be able to do that, but I think there are many in this room who'd say, I'm opposed to it. And if you really press them and say, theologically, why are you opposed to that? You'd say, I'm opposed to it right? We, we would maybe struggle a little bit with that. And then to push that maybe a little bit further, I think there are some of us who struggle to really be able to connect the dots between our argument against abortion and then our overall approach to the sanctity of all human life, right? Like how do the arguments for abortion apply to arguments for anyone and everyone? And that can be a difficult thing to do at times. And so uh, the main focus, again, of the sermon is the sanctity of human life and the story of Scripture. This falls under a very broad category. All right, so work with me here. Very broad category called theological anthropology. And by that, okay, that's a, a section of systematic theology. Work with me here. All right, don't, don't lose you. Systematic theology can include Scripture, right? Bibliology, what is the Bible? Systematic theology can include Christology, who is Jesus Christ? Theological anthropology can include eschatology. I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> Theologi uh, uh, systematic theology can include then what does it mean to be human? Anthropology from a theological perspective. So theological anthropology, it's basically the study of human beings and our relationship to God. 
And if you think about it, and I've heard uh, some apologists say, really the questions of our day, uh, a lot of them surround the topic or under the umbrella of theological anthropology. So let me give you just a few examples. Certainly abortion is one of them, right? Um, so we have abortion, beginning of life. We have euthanasia, right? Like end of life questions that those really surround are surrounded uh, with this topic of theological anthropology. Uh, questions of gender identity deals with humanity. Questions of sexuality deals with humanity. Questions of the family, a mom and dad and kids. That's really theological anthropology. Uh, mental health issues, the mental health crisis that we're facing under that umbrella of theological anthropology. Uh, even questions of art artificial intelligence that is affecting, I think, most every area uh, of our lives. Uh, I uh, work primarily in the education sector. Artificial intelligence is a big deal. Well, what's the difference between artificial intelligence and human intelligence, and how do we distinguish between those? Question of theological anthropology. So, as I mentioned, the starting place for theological anthropology should be scripture, and yet we live in a world in, in which scripture is not always, and actually in our world, seldom used as a starting place. And so there's alternative starting places. Uh, when we say, what does it mean to be human? Uh, we default to certain foundations. Not all of us always default to what scripture says. Some default to, well, I'm going to use biology as the foundation. Seems like a good place to start, but that can reduce us to just material beings, right? Some of us would default to philosophy, but that reduces us to just thinking beings. Some would say, well, it, psychology, that's an important one as well, but now we're just relating beings, relating to our past and to our future and to our families and to our pain. So the point today is we, are, we want to use as our foundation theology. We are theological, and that then informs biology and philosophy and psychology and all these other things. So four points to the sermon today. Four conditions of humanity that we want to walk through as we look at the story of Scripture. So the four points, humanity dignified. Humanity dignified, humanity objectified, humanity justified, and humanity glorified. So humanity dignified, objectified, justified, and glorified. Some of you in here are like, wait a minute, I think that's the meta-narrative. I, I think that's the big picture of Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. All right, you got me. All right? That is true. Those are the four points, the four conditions of humanity. And so let's start into that. So condition number one, humanity dignified. We've already read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, talking about our creation in the image of God. But if you look at Genesis chapter 1, you'll notice kind of a pattern to God's creation, right? So look at, for instance, verses 3 through 5 as an example of the pattern of God's creation. God is speaking the world into existence. He says in Genesis 1, 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And we see this pattern of creation, days one through six. 
That is what God has done as he's speaking the world into existence. But when we get to day six, the end of Genesis chapter one, we see that the pattern is not necessarily broken, right? God is continuing to speak the world into existence, and yet he gives a fuller explanation of what is happening in day six. Uh, We see something unique about what is happening when we get to the creation of humanity. It's a greater depth of understanding. When you add to that then Genesis chapter 2 which is basically an explanation or further explanation of what God has done in in day 6 we see that there's something unique about the creation of humanity as one commentator says human being is the pinnacle of God's creation we are the crown jewel right we are the highlight of God's creation and we see that from the pattern even in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 Two implications then, when it comes to our creation in the image of God and why that provides a foundation for everything else, there's a lot of different things we can talk through. Um, We could spend really a semester, and we do some of this at Liberty, you know, talking just about the image of God and where different theologians land on that. We're not going to take a bunch of time today, but I want to kind of summarize a little bit um, two important implications about creation in the image of God. First of all, is that we represent God to his creation. Okay? So humanity's creation in the image of God means that we represent God to his creation. Within the context of Genesis chapter 1, we see that the man and the woman were both created and they were told to have dominion over God's creation. That's Genesis 1.26. Also Genesis 1.28, we see this. This is not dominion for our own sake, right? This is dominion on behalf of God, on behalf of the Creator. Uh, In in some regards, I've heard some explain it this way, that we were created as uh, what you'd call a vice regent, right? Someone who rules on behalf of someone else. Uh, So God has put us in place to represent Him to creation. Uh, we govern on his behalf. We, we don't act as God. We act on behalf of God over his creation. I mean, a really bad example of this, but it's the only one I could think of. Uh, you know, the teacher leaves the room, and the teacher turns to the student and says, hey, you're in charge while I'm gone, okay? Um, now, God didn't leave us, right? But he did create, and he said, hey, I've, I've put humanity to manage my creation. That is what God has done for us, but as I mentioned, we don't lead on our own behalf. But we don't just represent God. With that representing God, a second implication is that we have a responsibility because of that, and that responsibility is ultimately to worship God and to help others to worship God as well. So creation in the image of God, we represent him to his creation. We've been put in a place of leadership. We're not ultimately the ones in leader. That is God, but then we are to point God's creation to God, right? So turn to Psalm 8 as an example of this, okay? So Psalm 8, I think, gives us a bit of an example of what this looks like. Uh, And we see creation and we see worshiping God both here in Psalm 8. It's as though David was having uh, devotions that morning. Uh, reading the Genesis account, and as he's reading the Genesis account, 
he just kind of breaks out and prays to God. So Psalm 8, I'm going to read the whole psalm. It's just nine verses. This is a psalm of David. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So if you notice, David bookends this account of creation with praise to God. He bookends with this idea of worship to God as a result of creation itself. Uh, if you couple that with kind of an understanding of what maybe was going on in the ancient Near East as Moses is writing Genesis chapter 1, and the way in which leaders would have been regarded in that time. So think of Pharaoh, for instance, right, in Egypt. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you, we see that in the book of Daniel where the leaders were deified, right? Leaders of nations were deified. They were seen as godlike beings. And Moses is writing and saying, it's not the leader who is godlike. All of us bear God's image. And because all of us bear God's image, there's something unique about all of us. Okay, not that we are God, but that we represent God and we are to worship God uh, because of who he is. So in the midst of that context, we see that God has literally, in a sense, set up an image or even you would say maybe even a statue of himself in order for us to worship him. As a conquering king would come into a kingdom, they would set up a statue of themselves. This is who you pay tribute to. Look to this statue. You see who is ruling over you. God set up images, statues of himself in humanity to say, look to this person and they will point you to God. That's how it was originally designed. So when we get to the sanctity of human life, to take a life, to take a life is to destroy an image of God. And that image is universal, not just reserved for the kings, not just reserved for the rulers. It is universal that male and female created in God's image to represent God and ultimately to glorify him. So as we set a foundation for understanding of the significance of the baby in the womb, the significance of all people ever created, we need to ask ourselves a couple questions. First of all, how well do I represent God to his creation? And secondly, does my life help others worship God? That is what we are created to do. Represent God to his creation and to ultimately worship God. Humanity dignified, not because of anything we've done, but because our literal creation in the image of God. 
Now, as we press further, we'd say condition number two is humanity objectified. You say, Gabe, you know, that, that sounds very good that we're created to glorify God and that we represent God to his creation and we govern on his behalf over his creation. All of that sounds good, but we don't live in a Genesis 1 world. We live in a Genesis 3 world. We live in a world that has been affected by the fall. The, the reality of the fall cannot be ignored. And uh, I had a mentor of mine that basically said, you know, the reality of the fall is something that there is no lack of evidence for within our lives. We see it all around us, right? We see brokenness. We see pain. We see heartache. We experience it on a daily basis. And so how do we live in light of a Genesis 3 world? Well, what has happened is dignified humanity has now become objectified in the way that we interact with one another. Now, you might ask, well, was the image of God, maybe it's been lost in the fall, but if you turn to passages like Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, or James chapter 3, verse 9, I'm not going to read them for you right now, but Genesis 9, 6, don't murder one another. Why? Because you are created in God's image. Genesis, or, or James chapter 3, verse 9 says, hey, uh, don't curse one another. Why? Because you're made in the likeness of God. And so we see that the image of God, that unique aspect to humanity remains even after the fall. As one uh, author says, the image of God was not annihilated, but it was perverted because of the fall. John Calvin uh, describes it this way. He says the image of God was deformed, vitiated, mutilated, maimed, disease-ridden, and disfigured. But yet the image remains. We are not what we are supposed to be because of the fall. It has affected everything that we do. And we might say, well, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in a condition where we no longer look to God for our meaning and purpose and who we are. We now look to everything else almost except for God for that. We look to anything and anyone. We trade our identity as God's image bearers for other idols. We don't worship the one true God. We end up worshiping other things or other people. And so we objectify humanity, and by that we are perverting what God has put in place. This objectification, it propels us into a host of other pursuits. This might be materialism, where we just hoard things, right? We look to things to give us meaning and purpose. This might be humanism, where we elevate individuals, right? And we put individuals at the center of our universe. Uh, and one that I think we could spend a lot of time talking about is we pursue pleasure, hedonism. Um, one of the main challenges, I will admit in my own life, is just the pursuit of pleasure. I want to do what feels good, whatever that means. I, I want to lay around and not do much. I want to watch movies. I want to eat what I want to eat because it makes me feel good. Then I feel bad after I've eaten it. But you know what I'm saying. We pursue pleasure. We look to people and objectify them. And so ultimately the objectification that we have because of the fall leads in two directions, okay? One, it leads in the direction where we dehumanize one another, less than human. And another direction, it leads to where we deify one another, and look to other people as though they're God. 
All right, so let me give you a couple examples of this. Uh, and, and honestly, this is where this sermon maybe gets a little bit tricky, and so I won't spend too much time in it because it makes me feel bad, right? Um, abortion is wrong, right? Because it destroys an image bearer. We have a lot of heads nodding when you say something like this in the room, but it, it reduces the baby in the womb to simply an object. It dehumanizes the child. Uh, in this case, the child is not given rights that any other human being would be given. All right, so again, this is not meant to be a political statement, but there are laws that are being proposed and ideas that are out there to say, if nothing else, let's give the baby in the womb the rights that any other human being would have. Why is it that we deny them basic rights? It's dehumanizing, right? So abortion, we say, yeah, I'm with you. All right, here's another example. What about pornography? Like, oh, wait, can, can we talk about that from the pulpit? Pornography, at its very core, is dehumanizing. It makes another person an object, an image bearer of God that is then used for oneself. Right? Why are we against abortion? Because it ultimately is dehumanizing. It destroys an image bearer. Why are we against pornography? Ultimately, it's the objectification of an image bearer and is dehumanizing. But again, most of us in this room would say, abortion, I'm with you. Pornography, yes, that's wrong. It's objectification. It's dehumanizing. It's belittling. Let me press a little further. One that even hurts me. I'm not going to look in certain directions of certain people at this point, but if we're not careful, what do we do or what has sports in the U.S. made us do? Sports can be, for instance, dehumanizing. Don't get me wrong. I think sports are amazing. I think they're wonderful. wonderful. I, I require my kids basically to play sports because I think they can be helpful. But if we're not careful, we take something that can be created for good and we make it into how well can that person catch? How well can that person throw or kick? How fast are they? Maybe they become all but meaningless to us because, well, they've gotten a little old and they can't do what they used to be able to do. If we're not careful, sports can become dehumanizing. Again, I'm not against sports, all right? I'm bitter because the Steelers are... Anyways, okay. Um, <clears throat> all right, one more. So objectification can be dehumanizing. We belittle people. At the other end, we pervert the image of God and we actually think more highly of people, we don't dehumanize them, we deify them. At times, if we're not careful, we can deify, for instance, our children. Right? How do we do that? Well, we make them the center of our universe, and every decision as a family revolves around that child. That is a deification of the child because you place them at the center of your world. It, it's wrong for the child. It's wrong for the parent. It's wrong for the community, right, when we do something like that. The child, instead of using them to glorify God, we elevate the desires of the, of the child over the glory of God. I, I know this is a bit tricky. 
we want to show our children that they have value. We want to show them that they have worth. They want to show them that they should be glorifying God, but we distort this at times by putting them in the center of our lives. And you might be sitting here saying, well, hey, I don't have children. I'm off the hook. Um, we do this with other relationships as well. Husbands and wives, boyfriends and girlfriends, right? Teachers or mentors or coaches. Yes, perhaps even pastors at times, right? We think so highly of people that they have a godlike status in our lives, which really, if you think about it, strips God of his glory and his rightful place of worship in our lives. And so a question for us as we look at, for instance, like Romans 1, I'm just going to read for you, where Paul says in verse 23, we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We're to be glorifying God, and yet we've exchanged the glory of God for mortal things. Things that God created good originally, but we have perverted them in a way that has objectified them. All right, so a question for us. How have I contributed to the objectification of others? And I was careful somewhat in the way I worded that not to say, have I contributed to the objectification, but how have I contributed? Because I have done it, and I'm confident you have done that as well. And it's something I think we really have to think through Yes, in light of the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, but in general as we think about our understanding of what it means to be human. So humanity dignified, humanity objectified, but thanks be to God, there's humanity justified, okay? And we've already spent some time this morning talking about this and even a key passage for this, but what is the answer to this distortion? It's not to look within or inside ourselves. It's not to turn inward and say, uh, you know, follow, follow the desires of my heart, right? The actual way to get ourselves out of this mess is to look outside of ourselves to the one who can actually help us through all of this. So thanks be to God that he has not left us in this helpless state. If we consider the person and work of Jesus Christ, we see that there is an answer to this objectification and this perversion and this dehumanizing and this deifying of the wrong things, and that is the personal work of Jesus Christ. So very quickly, I know we've been walking through the Gospel of John for the last couple years. We will get back into the Gospel of John here uh, in the next few weeks. But just a few passages in the Gospel of John that talk about the significance of who Christ is and that Jesus Christ, he is God, right? We are not God Jesus is God. So John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am, claiming to be the I am of the Old Testament. They picked up stones to throw at him and stone him as a result, saying that that is blasphemous for him to say that. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we see that humanity justified starts with a correct understanding of who Jesus is. And you say, well, Gabe, I thought we were talking about the image of God. Thank you for reminding me, because there are verses like Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint, okay, there's that idea of image, of his nature. And he upholds the universe 
by the word of his power. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We see that Jesus is the true image of God, not created in the image of God like we are, but the actual image of God. And through him, we have hope that he will bring us out of this state of objectification. And so through Jesus and through his work, we can be justified or declared righteous before God. Um, I put in the sermon before I looked at the, um, um, the uh, order of service, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So we've already read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So let me just highlight a couple aspects of that. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, verse 2. Verse 4, but God. But God, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has provided a way of justification for us that we would be right before him and that because of that we would then walk in a particular way that because of the work that Christ has done it would change what we do okay so created in Christ Jesus his workmanship for good works so turn to Romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 8 a verse that you're probably very familiar with. To tie some of this together, Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 28. We're going to start there. verse that you, uh, again, probably most of you have heard. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those, whom lo- uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Probably a verse that you've heard before. We're going to continue, though, to verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What does the justification of God do? It takes that image that in Genesis 1 was there, Genesis 3 was corrupted but still remains, and says it can be renewed. We can be we literally reborn through the work of Jesus and we can be conformed into the image of the Son. And say, well, who's the Son? Well, see previous verses. The Son is equal to the Father. The Son is truly divine. Now, we know that this is a process to get there. Again, a commentator says, we must never forget that while we're in this present life, believers are genuinely new, but not yet totally new. They are incomplete new persons. Our time on this earth, although we are declared righteous, although we are justified, that sanctification process is just that. It's a process as we are being conformed into the image of the Son. There's a formative aspect to this. Uh, We see this then and say part of that formative aspect is that we care about the things that God cares about. And that is the way that we treat one another. And especially the way that we treat the most vulnerable within our society. Consider James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Who are the orphans and widows? The, the helpless ones within that society. 
I, I would say it's not a big stretch to say, what does that look like today? It means caring for babies in the womb. Yes, orphans and widows as well. Caring for babies in the womb if we are truly living out a justified life. And so a question as we consider humanity justified, am I actively pursuing conformity into the image of Christ? And if you are, it will result in you caring about the things that Jesus cares about. Caring about the things Jesus cares about. I, I am so thankful that this church already has taken steps to support ministries like the Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center, to send out missionaries across the world to proclaim the gospel. That is what we are about. That's what we will continue to be about. And so this is not a call to say, hey, we haven't been doing anything. Let's start. This is called to say, let's keep doing what we're doing. Let's add even more fuel to that fire to continue to impact our community for the glory of God. And then finally, condition number four is humanity glorified. Now, some of you originally, when I said that, might have been like, hey, glorified is a little, you know, like God's the one we glorify. Humanity doesn't get glorified. But uh, there is in Scripture uh, indications that we are in a glorified state eventually, right? So let me explain that a little bit. Um, uh, Philippians chapter 1 is an example of this, uh, that Paul talks about this process of working out our salvation is something ongoing, but it is literally a work of God. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is the one working for his glory in our lives. He is the one whose image we are being conformed into. And if you look back at Romans chapter 8, I read verses 28 and 29. Now I want to read verse 30, because verse 30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this glorification of humanity does not mean that we reach God status. We are not divine, but it does mean that what has happened to us in this eternal state that we will be in is that we ultimately are accurately reflecting the glory of God in what we are doing. The old nature will be completely passed away, and the new nature will be there. Um, in the resource, uh, a book called God's Many Splendored Image, the author summarizes this. I want to read it to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but um, I usually have a lengthy quote in my sermons anyway. So here we go. Save it for the end. This is what the author says. It says, The fulfillment of the divine image in humanity is communion with God. So to know him and be known by him, that is communion with God. That's fulfillment of the divine image. Notice what he says. He says, it is sharing in this eternal life so that we can be freed from death. It is dwelling in him as he dwells in us. The goal of the divine image, the purpose for which God has created us, is what he calls theosis, which is the divinization of humanity. Okay? Now then he explains it. This does not mean what the serpent said when he told Eve and what she and Adam, that they would be like God apart from God. 
That lie was effective because it was so close to the truth. The purpose of human existence is to become God-like, for we were created in God's likeness with the task of manifesting it more and more. Yet the only source for real divine life is God himself. Real human God-likeness must therefore be derived entirely from God. So the only way humans can share in divine life is by staying close to God, united with God, choosing what God chooses, doing along with God what God is doing first. Such activities is always grounded in love. It is not prideful. It's not self-serving. does not come through disobeying God and thus moving away from Him as Adam and Eve did in the garden. That God has come to us in Christ as human in order to unite us with God's self again after our fall. I heard a pastor explain it like this one time. He said, when you look at the moon at night, it would be inaccurate to say, although we do, look how bright the moon is. The moon is simply reflecting the sun. We do not have our own glory. We are simply reflecting the sun. That is what we are called to do. And ultimately, in the eternal state, we will, in a very real sense, be in a better place than Adam and Eve in the garden who were able to sin and did sin. We will be in a sinless state, ultimately, for the glory of God. And so as we consider humanity glorified, a question, even as we are struggling through this world at times, have I allowed the glory of God to be manifest in my life, and do I long for the day when God makes all things new? So humanity dignified, humanity objectified, praise God, humanity can be justified, and ultimately humanity can be glorified because of the work of God in our lives. And so as we look at all of that, to have a better foundation from which to engage topics like the sanctity of human life, I hope that as we prepare ourselves, equip ourselves, go into the mission field, whether in Lynchburg or halfway around the world, we are better prepared then to be able to have a theological foundation for what God has provided for us. Now, I started this message by saying, there's more than one abortion every minute. And I've spent about 45 minutes talking to us about the significance of the image of God, which means around 50 babies, on average, would have been killed in the last 45 minutes. There's maybe 200 in here today. That's a quarter of this room gone that quickly. So it's a real need and I think God is likely stirring in some of us today, saying, yes, I want to pray for, yes, I want to have conversations about, but yes, I want to get actively involved in this ministry here locally, around the U.S., or even around the world. And so if that's the case, let's have a conversation, let's get you plugged in, whether it's the Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center or other ministries that are taking very seriously this call to care for the unborn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God. For the way in which you've worked in our lives, God, I thank you for Scripture, that we can turn to Scripture, God, 
I thank you that we can learn about you, what you require, God, and that we can learn about ourselves from the pages of Scripture. Maybe take this seriously. God, for those of us who are struggling to find our identity, may we find it ultimately in you and the creation in your image. God, for those of us who are objectifying others, dehumanizing others, deifying others, God, may you help us through your justification in Jesus Christ. May our lives be changed as a result of studying your word, God. And ultimately, may we hope for this glorification, God, that we realize is not our own, but only comes through being connected to you. May we take that seriously, and may we go and minister on your behalf to your creation. In your name we pray. Amen.